Well, it is truly a delight for me to be back with you this evening. And again, I just want to extend my wife and I's gratitude to you for the kind invitation and the sweet fellowship and hospitality that we really have enjoyed here uh, over the last number of days. I do bring you the greetings again tonight of our congregation uh, in Sacramento. I do totally understand what Jim meant when he said, when you're not preaching in your own pulpit, but you're sitting in your own congregation, it's really tempting when you're only meant to be reading the Bible that you preach the Bible. Um, and I understand that temptation too, brother. It's a difficult thing for us as preachers when it's in us by the grace of God. It was nice to sing that hymn that we just sang. It reminded me of the time I met the one who actually penned that hymn, Vernon Hyam, an old Welsh preacher. And my memory of him was at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London at a school of theology, and he was looking at books And uh, we had opportunity to chat with him, and he was such a humble man. Um, But being a Welshman, uh, he is able to compose some wonderful hymns, and that one is surely one of the best uh, that we sing in the modern age. And so that was a delight this evening. We're going to read together from uh, one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I'd like you to turn to the 12th chapter this evening. I'm going to find out whether your eschatology is sound or not tonight. Uh, If it's not, hopefully it will be by the end of my sermon. But Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to read together, we're going to read together the whole chapter. And so let us hear the word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who was one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. To, weep her, to sweep her rather away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we are gathered tonight in that name which is above every name, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
We know, Father, that this is all of your grace. We do not deserve to be here. We are not worthy in and of ourselves to approach you. But we bless you and we praise you tonight for the grace that finds us in Christ. And for the blessedness of knowing you through your Son. And for the opportunity again that you have afforded to us to gather to praise you, to seek you in prayer, and to hear your holy word. And, O our God, it is our prayer tonight that you would come by the power of your Spirit and teach us afresh the truths of your word, that we might behold something of the wonder of your grace, something of the greatness of your purpose, and something of the beauty of your Son, that, O our Father, you might equip us to live by faith in the one who has loved us and given himself for us. We ask, Lord, that even for any amongst us tonight who are yet strangers to your grace, who know not Christ, who have not yet bowed the knee to believe in him, that you would, by your Spirit, bring them from death to life, that they might turn from their sin and trust in him. Be glorified, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Revelation, as you well know, is a very controversial book in many ways. One might say that it really does fulfill that little adage, wonderful things in the Bible I see, things that are put there by you and by me. And we don't want to approach the book of Revelation with such a mindset. It's vitally important that we understand that as as God brings his final word to his apostles in this book, that it comes in a very important context that we need to understand. The Apostle John is an old man. The Apostle John has given his life for the gospel. And the Apostle John, the Bible tells us here in Revelation in the first chapter, is now in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's been removed from his pastoral situation in what is now modern Turkey, what was old Asia Minor. He's now on this little island called Patmos. You can look it up on YouTube. It's a very interesting place to go on YouTube and see. It's not big. It was a penal colony. And the reality is that John finds himself looking across the Aegean Sea, wondering whether the church is going to survive. Here is the man called by Jesus himself to walk with Christ, having lived with Christ for three and a half years, listened to Christ. Here is the man that is described in John's gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here is the man whom Jesus commended his mother to as he is dying on the cross. Now an old man, having planted churches, Having seen conversions, he's now watching as the the clouds of persecution begin to gather as the Roman Empire rises up against the Christian church. And here he is on this island. There's nothing he can do. He doesn't know if he will live or die on this island. And Christ comes to him. And Christ reveals to him. The glory of Christ and the purpose of God in the history of the world. To encourage him not to be afraid, not to lose heart, but to look unto Jesus. And to know the Lord omnipotent reigns. Brothers and sisters, in our day... You can feel a little bit like John sometimes. You get tired. You look out at the world. You wonder what's the future of the church. What is God doing in the West particularly? I know for Americans, uh, there's a lot of concerns and fears. And yet, as Pastor Jim reminded us, we must not be afraid. But turn to our Bible and find encouragement. And find comfort and find consolation from God himself as he has spoken in his word for our good. And so tonight I want us to turn to the book of Revelation and to consider one section of that which Christ himself gave to John 
in the first century as he was sitting in prison for the sake of the gospel to encourage this elderly saint, all is not lost. Jesus is going to win. Because that's what we have to see here. As we come to what I'm calling this evening the great cosmic conflict. The great cosmic conflict. Now this is a conflict that won't be reported on the American media. I've never seen it reported on my favorite media channel, the BBC. (laughs) But the reality is that this is the great cosmic conflict that is continually going on behind the scenes. That every temporal conflict in the world is being orchestrated by. You see, when you watch your news bulletins, if you do, you should always watch it with the lens of scripture on your eyes. You know what that means? That everything that is happening is happening for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the church. If you really believe the Bible, that's what you must conclude. And we're going to see something of that this evening as we we dip into this uh, wonderful book of Revelation to encourage uh, the weary saint, the discouraged saint, the fearful saint. And we're going to look at this great cosmic conflict as it's revealed to us here in Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see, first of all, the main characters that are involved in this vision. And it's very important to point out that when you're reading the book of Revelation, that's what you're reading. You're reading visions. And when you read visions, it means you don't take everything in the vision literally. And we'll see that as we go through this. It's kind of obvious, but nevertheless, it has to be said because some folks have taken these things so literally that it doesn't make any sense. But it's clearly not to be taken literally. It's a vision with much symbolism. And we're going to look at then the main characters that are involved in this great cosmic conflict as they're revealed here. Then we'll consider the central event relating to this great cosmic conflict, for that is revealed in the text as well. And then we'll look at the present reality relating to this conflict, and then we'll close out with some practical considerations for our lives that arise from our understanding of this great cosmic conflict. So let's consider, first of all, the main characters uh, that John sees in this particular vision that comes to him from our Lord Jesus, and we find them in verses 1 through 6, and we see clearly uh, that John is speaking in terms of having had a vision. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Here he is in this vision, and what does he say? He says, I saw a great sign appearing in heaven. And then he describes it for us. And as he describes it for us here, we see then that there are essentially three main players or three main characters in this scene. He speaks to us, first of all, of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. We need a little bit of imagination when we read our Bibles. We need to be able to picture these things, odd as they may seem to us. But here John then is introducing to us in this vision this woman who has these particular characteristics. Then he tells us, That another sign appears. So there's the first sign, then there's the second sign. And this second sign is a great red dragon with seven diadems and horns and heads, ten horns and seven diadems. And then he tells us of something of its actions and its tail sweeping the third of the stars from heaven to the earth. And then how the dragon takes up its position before the woman. And the woman then gives birth until we come to this third character in the vision. And the third character in the vision is a male child that this woman gives birth to. And something of the characteristics of this this male child are given to us. So let's let's unpack this for a moment. Trying to make sense of what is it that John is seeing? What is it that Christ is showing him as he's thinking about the fortunes of the church and the purpose of God in the history of the world? Well, the woman, of course... Uh, is clothed with the sun, Uh, the moon is under her feet, Uh, she's this crown with 12 stars, 
she's pregnant, crying out in birth pains. It's a very dramatic yet mysterious image that John sees. But four specific things mark this woman. Four specific things that help us, I think, to identify uh, who this woman might be. We have a huge clue, of course, as we read further down in the passage in 4a uh, and and, and 5, uh, when we, we see very clearly that this woman gives birth to a male child. Now, you might automatically think, well, it must be the Virgin Mary. No, hold on. That's not what we're seeing here. She is definitely the conduit by which God enters the world. However, there's something more going on, I believe, in this text. Because when you then read on that this male child is the one who rules all the nations, there's a messianic element to that, an echo, if you will, of Psalm 2. But what's really interesting is the language that John has picked up here is language that has already appeared in the Bible. Way back. In the book of Genesis. Turn with me for a moment. To Genesis 37. And consider another man who had a dream. His name is Joseph. And consider what we read in the dream that Joseph has. Way back in Genesis 37. Verse 9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream. And told to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. We know that Joseph was known as the dreamer, right? And he had dreams that his brothers didn't like. And this was one of them. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to me. That's why his brothers didn't like it. Because they were going to be bowing down to him. Blown sounds like he's boasting. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. That's interesting. Who is Jacob? He is Israel. And he kept the saying in mind. And he thought about this in terms of the purpose of God and the fact that Joseph would indeed be used of God. And of course, you know the rest of that story. And we see then something of the illusion here of this woman who's clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. It was already known in Israelite history. Something of the identity of Jacob and Joseph and the line that God had in terms of the promised Messiah. And John takes up something of that imagery to help us, I think, here identify who this woman actually is. Now, what's very interesting when you turn then to Isaiah 54, you pick up another thread here with regards to the history of redemption and with regards to the history of Israel. In Isaiah 54, we read here, Of the prophet Isaiah speaking of Israel in terms of being a barren woman. A barren woman. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing the cry and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. The picture here is that of a coming time when there would be expansion. In the purpose of God through the nation of Israel. And what do we find as we put all of this together back in Revelation 12? Well, I'm persuaded that what we have here is John is seeing this vision with these images and this woman and uh, the, the sun and the moon and the crown of 12 stars and her being pregnant. We're seeing here that which is depicting to us the old covenant people of God. And how do we know that we can be dogmatic about that? Well, let's just answer it quite simply. Where then did Christ come from? Where was the Son of God born from? He was born from Mary. In fulfillment to what? The law and the prophets. The Old Testament revelation. That which was given to the nation of Israel. So here is John. A Jew. Believing in Jesus, 
discouraged perhaps at what is happening in the world in his latter years, being reminded by Christ, John, remember the purpose of God in the history of redemption. Remember the role that Israel had to play in the coming of God into the world. And we certainly know, don't we, who the great red dragon is. We don't have to spend much time on that. Why? Well, because he's identified a little bit later in verse 9 in our passage as the devil. So that's great. I love it when Revelation goes, this is that. That makes it easy. Right? You just say, yes, move on. Don't have to go wandering off trying to put it all together. Right? So we know we've got the, the old covenant nation of Israel. We've got the devil. And then we know, don't we, who the male child is. The male child is described here as one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But then a very interesting phrase is given to us here in verse 5. As she gives birth, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, what is described here in a few words is the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Boom! In only a few words, the whole Humiliation and exaltation of Christ is described for us here. And notice, then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was a place, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished in one thousand for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. Now we don't have time to get into this, but if you look back in Revelation eleven, you'll notice that that one thousand two hundred and sixty days is the same period of time that is given to the two witnesses to bear witness to God and the gospel. In their time as well. If you put it together, my argument would be that what you really have here is that which is the post period after the ascension of Christ, the inaugural phase of the kingdom. Yes, the period we live in in redemptive history. And so the three characters here set the scene for us. They, they lay down for us the whole backdrop to what God is showing John as he's sitting on the island of Patmos wondering about the future of the church. What we see here very clearly is this, that God is encouraging John to realize God's purpose is on track. Don't worry, John. The Old Testament bore testimony to the coming of Messiah. The Messiah has come. The devil tried to stop it. You know, don't you, when you read the Gospels and about Herod and their effort to destroy Christ, that you literally have the historical moments of trying to kill the Messiah even when he was an infant. All of that is part and parcel of what is going on in this great cosmic conflict that God has Engaged in with Satan to what? Well, we're going to see it. Accomplish redemption. That brings us to the second consideration. That's the characters of this vision. Notice the central event. The central event that John states regarding this conflict. And we find this in the second scene, verses 7 through 12. We've got the identity of Old Covenant Israel, uh, the hostility of Satan, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. They're all part of the first act, if you will, of this drama. And now John proceeds to explain what lies at the very heart of this event, of this male child being born, living, dying, rising, ascending, reigning in heaven. And it's vital to understand what we have here in verses 7 through 12. Some have tried to advocate that what we have here is a movement back in redemptive history to before the fall uh, and a description of a pre-fall conflict in the heavens. I want to argue that there's no way that can be true for a couple of reasons. Notice, if it's a pre-fall argument... There is in view here that there was a battle in the heavens uh, before, the, before Adam and Eve with Michael and the devil and all of that. Verses 10 and 11 become impossible to interpret. Because notice what verses 10 and 11 say. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Well, there's no way that can be true if this is a pre-fall event. But you see, it's not a pre-fall event. This is very much a post-fall event. This is actually a description of what's going on in the heavenlies 
while Christ is on the earth during his earthly ministry. And we need to see this. It makes a nonsense of verse 13 and following. Notice what it says. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman and had given, who had given birth to the male child. Well, if he's pursuing the woman who had given birth to the male child, and we establish that the male child is the birth of Jesus, how can it be pre-fall? How can it be before Adam and Eve had fallen? How can it be that which happened then? It can't. Now, what we have here in this description, this part of the vision that we have given, that John has been given by our Lord Jesus Christ, is very clearly a description of a war in heaven that was occurring when Jesus was walking on the earth. Now, have you ever wondered when you read the Gospels, why does it seem like all hell has broken loose? You ever thought about that? Demons everywhere. Everybody's after Jesus. Everything seems to be wild. Well, there's a reason. Because all hell had broken loose. To try and prevent God incarnate doing what God incarnate came to do. And here is the description of it given to us in the book of Revelation, given to John, that he might understand the reality of the fact that John, there is a cosmic conflict taking place, there is a a great cosmic conflict happening that you need to understand. Now when did it get declared? When did this cosmic conflict get declared? Well, actually it got declared pretty early in redemptive history. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Have you ever wondered about Genesis 3.15? We talk about it being the proto-evangelium, you know, the first gospel declaration. What's really interesting about it is it's actually not spoken to Adam and Eve. It's spoken to the devil in the presence of Adam and Eve. In other words, it's God telling the devil what God's going to do in order to rescue mankind. Look back at it for a moment. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.14, just in case you miss it. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, that is because you've influenced man and woman to bring about the fall and the curse and all of that, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is God promising the devil that he will not win. That's what he's doing. He's giving hope to Adam and Eve. He's giving hope to mankind. But he's talking to Satan. And he's making it very clear. Now, what's fascinating then is you hold that thought, you jump into the Gospels, you get these various texts that seem to address this issue for us again. Look at Matthew 12 and verse 29. Our Lord Jesus here is addressing the issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and he speaks uh, very clearly regarding his own identity, and and he talks about if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Verse 26, how then will his kingdom stand? Because he's being accused, of course, of being of the devil. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus was consciously aware that he had come from the Father to bind the devil. That's why you read in his temptation, that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. To be tempted of the devil, to overcome the devil on our behalf. And we need to understand this, we need to see this. Luke chapter 10, uh, another gospel witness to this very truth, is clearly stated for us. Turn there, Luke 10 and verse 18. And again, notice the context here 
Our Lord has sent out 72 missionaries, if you will, gospel ministers, if you will. And in this context, in verse 18, Jesus says this, as the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They say, I saw, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, how did the man, Christ Jesus, see Satan fall from heaven? Because he's God the Son. And not only does he know what's going on on the earth, but he knows what's going on in the heavenlies. And this picture that we have painted for us here in Revelation speaks very clearly to the fact that while Jesus is on the earth, there is a cosmic conflict taking place in the heavens as well. Turn to John 12. And here the Apostle John, who will hear these things later in his life that we're looking at right now, says this in John 12 and verse 31. In the context of our Savior speaking of himself being lifted up and drawing men to him, what do we find here? We find these words. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is talking about the cross. Jesus is talking about him dying in the place of sinners. But notice that he's tying it in to the fact that the death of Christ on the cross is a judgment of the devil and the casting out of the ruler of this world. The two are joined together in the mind of Christ. And just in case you need it a little bit clearer than that, let's look at John in his first epistle. We read chapter 5 this morning in the public reading of the word. I just want to draw your attention uh, to 1 John uh, chapter 3. And I just want you to see in verse 8 what John writes. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now notice what he says. This is a great statement. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so what do we find here is the central point of this vision, the central point, if you will, of human history that is given to us here in the book of Revelation. It is this, that while our Savior comes to the earth, he is coming to fulfill a cosmic uh, battle uh, to to overcome an enemy, an eternal enemy, if you will, or, or a spiritual enemy who has caused the universe to be corrupted and fallen. And as he is walking upon the earth, John describes it here in Revelation chapter 12 as a great battle taking place in the heavens and the devil being thrown down to the earth and the declaration being made, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Dear brothers and sisters, I tell you, if you're in prison wondering about the future of the church and Jesus comes and gives you this, it's designed to encourage your heart. It's designed to lift your spirit. That brings us then to the third consideration, the present reality that John then describes relating to this conflict between Christ and or God and the devil. Verses 13 through 17. It's the third scene of our drama. And with the purpose of God in Christ very much laid out in both of the description of the characters uh, and the description of the central event of Satan being cast down and the kingdom of God being established, Satan has been definitively vanquished. Now listen to what I'm saying. Definitively vanquished doesn't mean he's not still active. You mustn't equate the two, and we're going to look at that. But it is very clear that there has been a definitive defeat of the devil in the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. Our Savior has bound a strong man. Our Savior has cast him down. 
Our Savior has definitively dealt the death blow with regards to the works of the devil to take the human race to eternal destruction. And here now, we discover in this last scene that by means of the devil's reaction, the woman then is described as going out into the wilderness and being pursued by the devil. And notice how it is described that there is a protection for the woman uh, by way of this imagery of a two, two wings of a great eagle flying down and, and catching her up and, and taking her to a place of nourishment for time and times and half a time. But notice the serpent is not done. He's pouring water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth comes to the help of the woman and the earth opens its mouth and swallows the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Here we have in this last scene a picture, I believe, of the present age. Of the fact that God does protect his church, but the devil does come against his church. But God does protect his church, but the devil does come against his church. And it will be this way till the end of the age. The devil will continue to be furious with the woman to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God. What's the Lord saying to John? He's saying, John, until Christ comes in his glory, it is going to be difficult. It is going to be hard. Even though the devil has been definitively defeated, he's not inactive and he still comes up against the church to try to destroy her. You say, well, how can that be encouraging to John? Well, I think what he's really been given by our Savior is a dose of realism. You know, a dose of realism is a good thing for us as Christians. We have to face reality. None of us know how we're going to die. None of us know what the future is for America. None of us know what the future is for the church in America. But we don't have to be all caught up in anxiety and fear as we were reading earlier. We need to know the Bible. We need to be clear on the purpose of God. And we need to be confident in the Son of God. And we need to be committed to the gospel of God. And know at the end of the day, though it's true, I would love to die in my bed with my family around me, singing out of the Trinity hymnal, wonderful hymns, and let me go quietly to heaven. And I don't want my head chopped off, and I don't want a bullet in the head, and I don't want to be hung from the lamppost. I don't know how I'm going to die. And I'm not going to be preoccupied with it. I won't miss it when it comes. But the reality is that I've got to trust God and believe his word and know clearly that victory has been definitively won by Jesus. And it will yet be consummately won by Jesus. And I don't have to worry about the end result. Glory is coming. How I get there, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is I will get there by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that brings us then, brothers and sisters, to simply some practical truths I want to leave you from uh, these things that we've considered. Just four applications I want to press upon you as we close. First of all, I want you to see from this that all of human history is ultimately about the conflict between God and Satan for the souls of men. All of human history. Now, if you don't like history, repent. Okay, it's quite simple. I tell my congregation, if you don't like history, you're a really bad sinner. You need to repent. Right, boys and girls, history is so important. Redemptive history is the most important because the Lord of history is the ultimately important one. And who is the Lord of history? God. God is the Lord of history. His son, Jesus Christ. And what do we see here? In a day when many scoff at the teaching of the Bible and many mock the idea of a God who created us in his own image and who then judged us and cursed us because of our willful rebellion. Many scoff at that and the idea of God then being the one who in Christ saves us. We must be very clear. This is exactly what the Bible teaches and we must never depart from it. There's a reason why history is being denigrated in our generation. Ultimately, it's the tip of the spear to destroy the church. 
Because our faith is a historical faith. God actually stepped into his creation in the person of his son in the fullness of time. We can never give it up or we lose the gospel when we lose our salvation. So as we look at this, as John is, is wondering what God is doing, no doubt, and Christ is coming to comfort his disciple and encourage him in his old age, as you think about this great, this great cosmic conflict that's revealed here in Revelation 12, recognize that all of human history, from the very beginning, from the fall of Adam and Eve, is ultimately about the conflict between God and Satan for the souls of men. In a world where many deny the truth of the past and they seek to revise it for their own ends, we must hold fast to God's commentary about it, to God's revelation about it. And in a world in which many in the present age are wandering aimlessly through life without hope, without purpose, we must hold fast to the truth that the Lord omnipotent reigns. There is a creator. There is a spoiler. They are not equal in power and glory. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. He is God and there is none other. And he has in Christ definitively defeated Satan. Through the life and death and resurrection of our Lord. And he's working out his eternal purpose in the world through his Son. So all of human history is ultimately about the conflict between God and Satan for the souls of men. Secondly, God's purpose in saving sinners is definitive and sure. It's definitive and sure. In a world that is so unstable and so changeable, what a great consolation it is for us tonight to know this. That the God with whom we have to do, the God who truly exists, has a saving purpose that is definitive and sure, it cannot fail. Pastor Jim dropped dead tomorrow, and I dropped dead the next day, and all your elders dropped dead. Here's the reality. Not one of God's elect will be lost. Now, that doesn't give us a license to be complacent and nonchalant, but it does help us sleep in our bed at night. To do as the famous old Scottish Presbyterian theologian used to do when he went to bed, and his students asked him what was his last profound thought before he would go to bed at night, you say. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We can go to bed knowing the Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers. And he keeps the church. And he builds the church. And in Jesus Christ, God has defeated Satan. And in Christ Jesus, God has punished sin and defeated death and accomplished redemption. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, listen to me. Redemption for sin has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. That is to say that his atoning sacrifice on the cross, the shedding of his blood, has satisfied the justice of God that you deserve to experience, which would be eternal hell, and has turned away the wrath of God that right now in your unbelief is abiding upon your head. And if you would be rescued and delivered from the justice of God, you don't want the justice of God, you want the mercy of God, Right, And if you would be truly reconciled to God and forgiven for your sins, you must believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who is the only Savior from sin. You can go home tonight, a child of God, a Christian, one who has turned from unbelief to trust, one who has come to know the true and the living God. Do not on hearing the invitation of Christ to believe in him, turn your back. Turn away. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity that God is giving to you to be a Christian. God's purpose, you see, in saving sinners is definitive, is, is sure. You say, well, what do I need to do? Do I need to do it? No, you need to just believe in Jesus. Trust in Christ. God who has come in the flesh to fulfill all righteousness. That is to say his life has been lived righteously so that we can enjoy the blessing of that, we who live unrighteously. And his death satisfied justice and turned away wrath and secured forgiveness for your sins that offend a holy God. 
And he has risen from the dead. Ascended into heaven. Where he is right now. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Awaiting that command to come again in glory. To end the world and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you will but trust him. Dear old older person. Dear younger person. You will be saved. Why? Because he's accomplished redemption. It is finished. There's nothing more to be done. Nothing you need to do. But rest your soul in Jesus Christ. So God's purpose in saving sinners is definitive and sure. Thirdly, becoming a Christian brings you into God's glorious purpose. But also into Satan's crosshairs. This is important to understand. When God saves us, he brings us into his purpose. It's not about us bringing them down into our purpose. We often misunderstand that. To become a Christian is to become part of this great purpose of God in Christ. To be delivered from darkness into light. To be delivered from bondage into liberty. To be delivered from death into life. Eternal life. There are glorious blessings that can never be taken away from us once we receive them by grace through faith in Jesus. Union with Christ brings about our justification. It brings about our sanctification. It brings about our adoption. But what we also have to realize is it brings us into the crosshairs of the devil. The devil doesn't want any of you to be saved. He wants to take you to the place that was prepared for him and his angels. The place called the lake of fire. He knows his doom. He knows what's coming. He knows he has lost definitively. He's still fighting. He's still seeking to destroy and steal and wreck. So we need to be aware of that. I always tell people if you come to Jesus, he won't necessarily solve all the problems you have at all. He might just give you a whole new set of problems. That's the reality. Being a Christian is not easy. There are many challenges in being a Christian. But it is the most blessed, most glorious life in the world. Why? Because it's eternal life itself. And it is that which brings us to glory. Otherwise we perish. Otherwise we face eternal wrath. But you must understand. Don't be surprised. If you've found the Christian life to be challenging. Spiritual warfare is a reality. That's why Paul will write to the Ephesians what he does about the putting on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand. You see, you might become, a, you become more aware that you're, you're more sinful than you realize. That's right, because you're alive. You once were dead. You didn't get it. You might recognize that there are more temptations and hostilities in the world than you ever perceived. That's right, because your eyes are open. They once were blind. Your spiritual sensitivity is now a reality because you are a new creation where you once were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But the apostles encourage us that we are to be sober and vigilant. And we need to remember that there is a devil, an adversary seeking to devour us. That we are engaged in a spiritual conflict now that we are new creation. And we will feel the tension. The tension of being new creation in old creation world and still with remaining bodies that are dying. There is a tension in the Christian life. But nevertheless, Christ has overcome. And because he has overcome, you will overcome. And that's the last point I want you to see. Being a Christian, as we read this account of the cosmic conflict and the outworking of it, even with the devil coming after the church and the battle that still is being fought, being a Christian is about continually appropriating Christ and his work in your life and resisting the devil to the end. Which by the grace of God you will do. You will. How do I know? Well here's what Paul says. Having begun a good work in you. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. No man shall pluck you out of his hand. If you are in Christ tonight my dear saint. You are going to glory. There will be many trials and temptations between here and there. But you will overcome because Christ has overcome and because Christ has overcome and Christ has loved you and Christ has died for you and Christ has risen for you and Christ is ruling and reigning for you and praying for you and coming for you again he'll bring you home and so my dear brother my dear sister 
You may have come to church discouraged tonight. You may have come to church wondering what is really the future. Well, we don't have all the details, but we do have the final result. Glory. Glory. That's where it is going. He has loved you and given himself for you. And in response, he says, trust me, I'll get you there. Because I have overcome the world and the devil. I have defeated him. He is a defeated foe. Yes, he may assail you. Yes, he may cause you difficulties in your life. But he cannot have you because you are Christ's. And when Christ prays for you, as he did for Peter, when Christ prays for you, Christ's prayers are effectual. And they will bring you safely home to glory. And so, my dear brother, my dear sister, the reality for us tonight is this, that being a Christian, it's all about understanding who Christ is, what Christ has done, that we might continually appropriate it to our hearts, that we might continually resist the devil, that we might continue to put off the flesh, that we might continue to flee the temptations of the world all the way home. And we can be confident of this. Because Jesus has overcome, we too shall overcome. We are part of the greatest conflict in the history of the world. But we are through Christ more than conquerors. Let us rejoice in that blessed truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is for us to traffic in these blessed truths of an accomplished redemption of a conquering saviour and of a wonderful future that is secured for us in Christ. We recognise, Father, that between here and glory there may be many trials, many temptations, many tears, many sorrows. But we bless you, Father, that no matter how many there are, we are in Christ more than conquerors and we shall in him overcome. He has lived for us. He has died for us. He has risen for us. He has ascended for us. He is praying for us. And he will come again for us. Because he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And he has accomplished our redemption. O oh Lord, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.